across the Atlantic, we've witnessed once again an unarmed African-American being killed by a police officer. The murder of George Floyd has been followed by protests and riots to which police have been seen to respond with extreme brutality. We watch events in the US in horror, also very aware that our continent is far from immune from similar dynamics and systemic discrimination based on race, as well as ethnicity, class, religion, nationality, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Here at EuropeLex, we're an ideologically diverse group and always aim for nonpartisan coverage of elections, polls, and politics across the continent. That being said, a significant element of our team, our identity, and our work is that we do not under any circumstances condone racism, sexism, fascism, homophobia, or any form of discrimination. We hope for justice and peace for George Floyd and for Black people all over the world. We join with others in saying that Black lives matter. Hello there and welcome to the EuropeLex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and with me of course is EuropeLex Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi Ewan, yeah, all good, all good. It, uh, it's good to have more activity in the world of elections in recent weeks and we have some fascinating interviews as well this week so definitely feeling that slump in politics having disappeared completely now. Definitely feel like things are getting busier and this episode is no different especially ahead of elections in Serbia, North Macedonia and Croatia. We are going to be talking to two experts on the Western Balkans and something of a Western Balkan special. Gabriel's been chatting to the executive director of the European Western Balkans and the program director for Centre for Contemporary Politics, Nicola Boratza. And I have been talking to the associate professor of international relations and head of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of the Peloponnese in Greece. That's now Nikolaos Dufakis. Really exciting guests, but first, as ever, let's do some news. Yes, and uh, we'll start off uh, in the Balkans as well, in Montenegro, which is the first COVID-19 free country in Europe. So the government there in Montenegro has officially declared an end to the coronavirus crisis in the country. It's now been about a month since the last new case of the virus was detected in the very small country. Uh, and the central-left Prime Minister Dusko Markovic triumphantly announced that the country is open for tourism again, uh, an industry which makes up a large part of uh, the Adriatic country's economy. The only catch, however, is that visitors are only welcome from countries with less than 25 cases per 100,000 citizens, which definitely rules out where, where we are here. <laughs> yeah, no UK citizens in Montenegro for a while. Yeah. yeah. And not too far from Montenegro, we've got news of a new government in Kosovo. So in the partially recognised Balkan state, this week uh, a new prime minister has been elected by the parliament. Their name is Ab Abdullah Hoti of the centre-right LDK party, and they've been accepted to lead the government by the lowest possible amount of members of parliament. That's just 61 out of the 120 members, so that's 50% plus one. Hoti has taken over as Kosovo's fifth prime minister after predecessor Albin Kurti was removed from office by a no-confidence vote, despite only being prime minister since elections in October last year. Hoti's party was a junior coalition partner serving with Kurti's centre-left Vete Vendosia party before filing the no-confidence motion themselves, which led to their own government's downfall. So they've definitely done well out of recent political events in Kosovo. Good for them. It's good to hear that parliamentary chaos, though. It's, it's a universal, universal issue. <laughs> Every corner uh, of Europe. <laughs> so uh, now to Slovakia. 
Uh, so in Slovakia, the influential smear party of the center-left socialists and Democrats group has seen its internal political divides reach boiling point this week, um, as Peter Pellegrini, who's a faction leader, has threatened to break away from the party and found um, his own rival movement. And recent posts that we've shared at EuropeLex suggest that this breakup party could be the biggest political party in uh, an eventual election. Um, and the split, which is largely down the lines of social conservatism and social liberalism, have been explained very well and very in-depth by our very own Thomas Ballant. Uh, so if you head to our website, you can read that, plus analysis from across Europe. We also covered Slovakia ahead of their recent election there. So you can also go back and listen to our podcast about uh, the party landscape in Slovakia. Now I want to take you for a news item to Belarus, famously known as Europe's last dictatorship, where civil unrest has been growing ahead of presidential elections in August. Now, incumbent president Alexander Lukashenko has been in power since 1994 and has been recently subject to quite a lot of criticism. Um, as people queued for hours in Minsk to sign the, the nomination papers of opposition candidates, many held slippers aloft as a bizarre symbol of protest and symbol of defiance to their president who has gained the nickname the cockroach, as if they were then about to squash him with their shoe held in the air. Glad to see that they've got a sense of humor. Candidates uh, require 100,000 signatures to compete in the presidential election, with queues having stretched for miles this week in the capital city. However, one potential opposition candidate was arrested and imprisoned this week uh, for 15 days. Uh, Nikolai Statkovich was arrested during an anti-government protest and action heavily criticized by human rights watchdog Amnesty International. Freedom House scores Belarus at 19 out of 100, a very low score for a European country for the quality of its freedom. Now, this election comes after 12 months of increasing government aggression towards democratic forces, including raids on journalists and opposition politicians. It's been widely understood that the worsening relations with Russia have damaged the president's grip on the country and caused him to be more aggressive towards democratic forces. So now we're going to talk about Iceland. So for, for our loyal listeners, you'll remember that last episode, we updated you on the Icelandic presidential election, which is to take place by postal voting as a preventative measure against the novel coronavirus. Um, after the nomination stage of the election, the voting stage has now begun with two candidates making it to the ballot box this time around. You have the incumbent former historian, Gudni Johannesson, and former chair of the now defunct right-wing Bright Green Party, Gudmundur Franklin Jonsson. And those two men are the only candidates to reach the threshold. Voting will now continue until June 27th uh, online when the results will be announced. Something else that regular listeners will be itching to hear more news about is, of course, the forever election in Poland, which now finally has a date. The election will take place on the 28th of June, with the potential runoff set for two weeks later. This new date means that new candidates will have time to register for the election with a deadline set for the 10th of June for candidates to receive the 100,000 signatures required if they haven't already registered for the election. Currently, a two-round election is expected as no candidate is expected to receive a majority in the first round. Incumbent President Duda is in the lead but is expected to face a tough runoff battle against any of the other candidates with the PO candidate affiliated with the EPP, Rafał Traskowski, currently his closest rival. Independent journalist and author Shimon Holovnia is currently in third position. I'm still a bit in disbelief that it's actually happening, the Polish <laughs> election, but we'll keep you all posted, obviously, and we hope it all goes well. Now to the EU Parliament prediction. 
one year after. So it's been one year uh, since the EU election, and which means that our monthly parliamentary seat projection uh, has its sort of extra edge uh, a year on. We continue to be the only uh, organization or publication in Europe to produce a projection for the, for the European Parliament. And one year after the 2019 election, it's good news for the center-right European People's Party as they're up 15 seats on their 2019 results, according to our model. Left-wing GUA, NGL, and National Conservative ECR have also seen gains in seats. Losers, on the other hand, are the Green and European Free Alliance. They've seen the biggest uh, drop of any groups, losing almost half their delegation since last year's. We should note, however, that there's been just a minor um, change in the life of the European Parliament, which is that the United Kingdom um, is no longer a member of the EU, and therefore all of its representatives elected last year um, are no longer uh, part of our projection. So that's obviously impacted. Uh, the projection as well. Um, for full numbers and analysis, please head to our website, europelex.eu. Yeah, a small, a small event. It would undoubtedly go down to history as a tiny footnote in European history. Um. <laughs> <laughs> as an inconvenience to the Europelex yeah. seat projection. An inconvenience to the seat projection. That's definitely yeah. going to go down. Before we go on to our interviews, both of which are very exciting, I just want to ask you a question. Are you listening to this podcast on iTunes or another platform that allows for reviews? Then please do drop us a review. Um, and why not make it five stars if you, if you, if you believe that? I don't want to ask you to lie. Uh, it will only take a minute and it will be absolutely fantastic for us. It would really mean the world. Also, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and tell people about us. And finally, if you do have an idea for a segment or thoughts on topics we should be discussing, or you just want to say hi and let us know that you're listening, please do drop me an email at podcast at europelex.eu and I'd love to hear from you. We're 100% owned and supported by our listeners. And so we want to create content which you want to hear. Hi, everyone. So as we've been talking about, we're finally getting to the stage of spring and summer 2020, where we can start talking about electoral campaigns again. And one of the first national level elections we'll be covering at Europe elects are the upcoming uh, parliamentary elections in Serbia. And with that said, I'm thrilled to have Nikola Brazer with me today. He's the executive director of European Western Balkans. Welcome to the podcast, Nikola. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Serbs are going to the polls on 21st of June. And as I said, it'll be one of the first electoral events since the peak of the COVID-19 epidemic. So I thought just start off, like how is that impacting the election campaign at the stage? Do you think it will decrease turnout in any way? Well, there are two very important factors to consider if we are to discuss turnout on these elections. The first thing is, of course, the COVID pandemic, which had its effect on every country in Europe, and Serbia is no exception. And the other important factor is the boycott of the parliament, which uh, is announced by a vast majority of uh, opposition parties. So uh, when you take these two factors into account, uh, we will probably see a decrease in turnout uh, when compared to previous electoral cycles. But I cannot really say how much it's going to be, like, uh, uh, because obviously both factors are going to influence the turnout, but we still, we still do not know 
whether the position boycott is going to have the desired effect on their own voters. And the yeah. second thing is uh, the situation when it comes to uh, when it comes to the pandemic in Serbia is getting better every day, and we are loosening measures basically on a daily basis. So uh, it is hard to say now whether one month from now that there will be any effects of the pandemic. There might be none, and there might be some. So it depends on how the situation develops. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Just out of curiosity, what, what is usually the, the turnout levels in uh, parliamentary elections in Serbia? It is always somewhere around 50%, uh, somewhat above 50%. But it is, um, in reality, it is much higher than that because of the voting lists are not quite precise. A lot of the people who are on these lists uh, do not live in Serbia anymore, so the real number of voters is much smaller. So, in reality, it's it's a it's a bigger turnout than what the, what the statistics say. Ah, oh, interesting. And we'll get back to discussing sort of the opposition parties and and the boycott in a bit. But you have to sort of start off with discussing the dominant force in Serbian politics, which is uh, this SNS coalition led by. Uh, the Serbian Progressive Party. So in 2016, it received 48%. And looking at the polls in recent months, it's looking to grow, you know, even more, becoming even bigger this time around. So for our listeners that might not be very up to speed with Serbian politics, how would you describe this movement? Um, and what is it about them that's appealing to such a large part of the Serbian electorate um, at this time? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing to say is that definitely we already know who will be the winner uh, of these elections and uh, this would happen even if there was no boycott on the side of the opposition. You're absolutely right. The, the, the Serbia Progressive Party is the most popular political party in Serbia and it polls much higher than any of its uh, rivals. Uh, well, the SNS is a center-right party. If you look at its ideology, it is affiliated uh, with the European People's Party, and uh, it could be best described as a catch-all party, since it uh, contains, I mean, its members are both extreme nationalists and uh, uh, those who are in favor of European integration. They're quite hard to ideologically place in any part of the specter because of their, uh, let's say, uh, uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would call it a catch-all, uh, uh, basically, a way of, 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 of governing where you don't really know what is their ideology, what are their uh, goals. It basically changes depending on the, on the, on, the, on the feelings and the positions of the, of the electorate. Now, why is the SNS so popular? Well, first of all, they replaced quite an unpopular government, which governed from 2008 to 2012, uh, who governed in, which governed in the time of the, of the economic crisis. Yeah. And uh, the crisis had a very deep impact on Serbia. So the Progressive Party came into power in 2012, basically because of the uh, basically disappointment with the previous government. And uh, since coming to power, uh, they have managed to I would say assume almost total control over all state institutions and the media and uh, in their leader Aleksandar Vucic they found someone who is basically uh, the most popular political figure in the country so yeah. this is what is the basis of uh, of their 
uh, wide support. Without Vucic, uh, I don't think that the Serbian Progressive Party would be nearly as strong. He definitely seems, you know, like the the most influential and powerful person in Serbian politics, probably for the past uh, decade, at least, if not if not more. How, looking at him as an individual leader, what is it about him that's allowed him to be so successful? And what's the critique against him, as you would describe it? I know people accuse him and the party of having authoritarian tendencies. How would you look at that? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Aleksandr Vucic is no doubt the most popular politician in Serbia at the moment. And uh, I'm not exactly sure about the data, but I believe he's also the most popular politician in Serbia ever at least when it comes to those who are uh, in power. And this is not only visible in the election, election results, it's also visible in the polls. So he's the number one figure in the state and he is the most uh, important figure in his political party, which is actually where his power comes from. He was in the first government uh, in which SNS was a part of, he was the vice prime minister. Then in the next government, he was the prime minister and then once again prime minister, and now he's a Serbian president. But in all of these eight years, he is the number one figure uh, in the government and the number one figure in Serbia. As I previously mentioned, he is a reason why, why the SNS is actually the strongest party in, in, in Serbia. But if you ask me why, uh, what is so special about his personality that he will be so popular, my explanation of this would be that uh, media controlled by him and his party have managed to create this cult of personality where he is constantly present in basically all mainstream media who are praising him on a daily basis. He managed to create this image of himself as a tireless worker for the interests of the Serbian nation, as someone who doesn't sleep, doesn't eat, that doesn't really care about anything else except uh, the interests of the Serbian nation. Okay. Yeah. And this is something that his media pursued, like this kind of agenda is promoted on, uh, on a daily basis. And this is the reason why uh, Vucic is so popular among those who are actually reading these mainstream newspapers and watching these televisions who are, I would say, quite loyal to Vucic personally. So this is the main reason of his popularity. Now, of course, you can say that, well, this kind of strongman approach is in itself quite popular in Europe nowadays, but I don't think that would be quite possible without the control over the media. And about the authoritarianism, I mean, absolutely, ever since he came to power, there have been some visible authoritarian tendencies. The most important problem is media freedom. And this is something which could be easily seen in all the European Commission reports on Serbia. It could be seen in Report Without Borders reports on the media freedom in Serbia and Europe, where Serbia fell 39 places in the last six years and now find itself at uh, almost the last place in Europe. So uh, the media control is definitely one factor. The other is uh, the what what is called state capture. So it's some kind of subordination of state institutions to particular interests and a particular political party. And this is exactly what we see uh, in Serbia. Institutions one by one are losing their independence and their ability to act independently and do their job. So in the end, what we have is this. Obviously, all that you're describing that would point to uh, an election being questioned as being entirely free and fair, which you touched upon before, is something that um, has also you know, gained a lot of traction in Serbia with this, with this boycott 
so I guess first, can you describe the movement behind this boycott? Who is it led by? What's their agenda? And also, what what do you think this coming election being questioned will mean for both Serbian politics going forward, but also Serbia's relationship with the EU? Well, uh, the boycott campaign uh, uh, basically resulted from a series of protests which were held in Serbia in, 2000 and, uh, in the end of 2018 and 2019, basically this uh, wide, loose coalition of opposition political parties have agreed at some point to not take part in the elections unless uh, the conditions are improved. There have been some attempts to improve uh, the conditions uh, for the elections, first uh, directly between the political parties in Serbia and then later with the mediation of the European Parliament representatives. But these processes failed. There was uh, no agreement. Uh, one part of the opposition parties also boycotted this negotiation. And uh, in the end, uh, most of these parties are simply not taking part in the elections because there are no conditions. Now, it's, uh, it's easy to assess that conditions for the elections are quite flawed and that they are even worse now um, during the pandemic, uh, having in mind how much attention, how much media attention was given to the actions of the government and how they misuse the situation to their own uh, benefit. But the biggest biggest problem in Serbia is not the electoral day, it is what happens between the elections. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned this media bias and media control, but there are also, there's also a very, very, very large financial advantage uh, of the ruling parties against the opposition when it comes to financial um, uh, possibilities and also uh, control over the voters who simply quite frequently need to vote for the ruling parties because they would otherwise lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. So there is this whole, uh, this whole uh, w- wide array of problems uh, now uh, in, uh, in Serbia. Now, uh, whether this is going to affect the opinion, well, the European the opinion Union uh, somehow wanted to, uh, to help this process of negotiation so there, there will be no boycott. But as I mentioned, it was not successful. How is it going to affect the relation between Serbia and the EU later on? It is hard to assess, but the way things stand, it is not going to hurt very much because most, uh, um, let's say, factors in the EU are not really ready to criticize Vucic too much because of how these elections uh, are going to look like, with the exception of some groups in the European Parliament which are becoming more and more vocal about this. So it is hard to, hard to assess now what is the future. Uh, apart from the media bias and everything, there must be something about Vucic's strategy that is appealing to, you know, at least the majority of Serbs now. In terms of policy, is there anything there that they're pursuing that's proving especially popular or that they are campaigning on having done? Um, or is it all just media spin? Well, uh, there are some positive results to, um, to the, in these eight years of uh, Vucic in power. Um, I already mentioned that we had an economic crisis here that the, the, the world 
economic crisis, global crisis had its impact on Serbia. And after 2012, we have seen some economic growth, we have seen some decrease in unemployment. So there has been some at least decent economic results, which may explain why, why many people are maybe convinced that this government is taking Serbia on a good good path. There is nothing that specific about, uh, about what uh, the policies of the Serbian Progressive Party are. They're basically not that different from the policies of the previous Serbian governments. So they are in favor of uh, EU membership the same way as the previous governments were. They are negotiating with Kosovo the same way that the previous governments were. They maybe even increase the level of engagement in this dialogue with Kosovo but they are also at the same time not saying that they're willing to recognize Kosovo's independence. So this is this kind of cautious policy on Kosovo, similar to those who were taken by the previous governments. This government is also, when look at foreign policy, it takes pretty much the same approach of balancing between uh, the EU and the United States on, on one side and China and Russia on the other. This government maybe stepped up its game when it comes to uh, relations with these two countries, so Russia and China, but it's not a fundamental change from what it was before. So on the policy level, it's hard to explain why the, the party is, uh, is, is so popular. So this is why I stick to my explanation of, of, of this media bias, which may twist the facts and may just present things to be different no matter how, how similar they are to what was before. Okay. And what about um, the opposition then, uh, both round over the past years? I guess the, the first question is, where have they failed? So as you say, again, if, if there is this media bias and all this institutional power amassed by, uh, by the progressive party, that's obviously um, one factor. But is there anything on their side where they've failed beyond the financial crisis? And in these elections, then, with this boycott, what are the parties actually uh, contesting the election that um, people can vote for as an option? Uh, well, I would say the opposition parties mostly failed after they became opposition parties. So when you look at these 2012 elections in which the SNS assumed power, it was not such a big difference between uh, the SNS and uh, the previously governing political uh, uh, parties. Uh, later on, so in these years of being in the opposition, the support to these parties diminished dramatically. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is something which is uh, in, in a way specific to Serbia that people uh, just prefer the winners. They prefer the parties who, 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 who win, who are seen as the mainstream, who is seen as, uh, as, as, as you know, that, that somehow that they are the center and then everybody else doesn't really matter. And uh, the opposition parties have not really managed to 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 rally around certain certain policies to to challenge Vucic on a policy level. They have not managed to create the electoral platform which is going to you know like uh, 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 bring in new votes which are going to convince people that they're the better option. Their strategy in this past eight years was mostly pointing at Vucic and saying how how bad he is, how corrupt he is. 
that he's a dictator, that uh, he is uh, destroying media freedom, etc. Which is all, all of course, legitimate, you know, like uh, ba basics for campaigning. But it wasn't really successful in raising the profile of these parties in this last several years. So they have not really managed to, let's say, uh, to, to become like a, a serious opposition force, which is going to challenge uh, Vucic. All of them together, all of these parties who are in the boycott, all of them together would most probably not have 25% of the vote at this point. This is partially, of course, the, the, the responsibility of, of theirs. And of course, it can be partially explained by, by the lack of media freedom, where you know, all these uh, opposition party leaders are, are on, a, on a daily basis tarnished by, by media close to the government, who are presented as being enemies of the state, bringing chaos. They were even accused of bringing corona virus to serbia so you know there is there are no limits to how 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 far this media can go in demonizing these politicians so the explanations then could be you know you can find you can find explanations on both sides before we finish off um at europelex we're all political science people so we do like institutional questions and uh, and policies, um, and I've been reading about the electoral threshold being lowered for for this election to three percent, if I'm correct, from five. Um, why is this controversial in Serbia, and um, how has it come about? Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, a majority of opposition parties announced that they will boycott the elections. Yeah. And there have been these talks about improving electoral conditions. There was never a discussion about changing electoral laws, to change electoral laws or to change the way how political parties win seats in the parliament. It was not a topic in these conversations. And then the government, you know, like uh, decided to simply lower the threshold from 5 to 3%, claiming that this is how they improve electoral conditions, even though, I repeat, it was not something discussed in the talks. And especially important is that this change happened less than two months before uh, the elections, or a bit more than two months before the elections, who should have taken place in April if it wasn't for the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And why was it done? It was not only to show goodwill, it was made to literally lure opposition parties to take part in the elections because the logic was that if they think it would be easier for them to uh, win seats in the parliament, then they will be more encouraged to use the opportunity and take part, take part in, in the elections. And also one important thing which needs to be said here, in Serbia there is this phenomenon of uh, fake or loyal opposition parties. Now these are political parties who are maybe running on a, you know, they have their own positions about certain issues, but they're not really attacking the government in any way. They're not challenging the government and they are not really doing anything to, to, to question the, the very basics of Vucic's regime. And then, uh, because the majority of the opposition parties announced the boycott, and well, now seems, uh, you know, now it seems that they will actually boycott the elections, then the government tried to, uh, let's say, help some minor parties who are loyal to the mm -hmm. government to take part in the elections and, uh, create a facade of democracy in the country. And lowering the threshold was a deliberate attempt to make it easier for these parties to enter the parliament. And this is what is, you, is probably going to happen 
in on 21st of June. We're probably going to see at least one of these loyal opposition lists somewhere between 3% and 5% yeah. entering the parliament. What can we expect in the aftermath of the election? Because obviously it's not going to be what most Europeans are used to in terms of uh, you know, a regime change or a regroup of opposition parties? Like, what, what's going to happen, do you think? Well, uh, there are two options. The first option is that there will be no uh, significant opposition parties in the parliament at all, or at least no pro-European opposition parties in the parliament. That would not be a good scenario for, for the government, and this is not something the EU would look kindly upon. Yeah. The other option is that we do have some of these loyal opposition lists entering the parliament and then providing the government this facade of there being pluralism in the parliament and there be some discussion and some ideological differences and there will be someone in the parliament who is actually going to challenge the government and uh, be uh, pro-European. These are the two uh, the two major scenarios we can we can we can we can talk about. If if the first scenario happens, that will probably plunge the country into a much more serious political crisis because it will be evident then that that the parliament is quite a rump that we we do not see an adequate representation of different positions in the society within the parliament. In the second scenario. Uh, the government would probably be successful in presenting the new parliament as legitimate and the EU would probably be satisfied that there are some pro-European forces inside the parliament and then Vucic could just continue on uh, basically unchallenged with this boycotting opposition marginalized for the time being. Now, of course, it could change in some of the next elections, but in the short term, it would not provoke a bigger political crisis. And, you know, one of the things that uh, people are paying close attention to this year is the possibility of agreement with Kosovo. And yeah. this is something I would say that the European Union and its member states are quite interested in. And I think this is one of the reasons why they would prefer to have this kind of even uh, this facade of, of democracy in Serbia so that some kind of agreement could be reached and it wouldn't be just, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, evidently, evidently legitimate. These are the two scenarios and I, I think the second one is more likely because of the threshold being reduced and also because we have seen in the last uh, couple of days that one of these opposition parties who used to uh, you know, uh, boycott the elections is now taking part in them. And if it uh, enters the parliament, it will then be a general opposition uh, to mm -hmm. the government. So this scenario is more likely and it will be preferable, I would, I, would, I would say, both to the government and to the European Union. What could it bring to democracy in Serbia? I'm not so sure, but I think it would not be positive. Well, on that uh, somber note, um, we're going to wrap up. Uh, obviously, we still have a um, few weeks to go until until the election, and we'll be publishing all the polls as they come out and offering coverage. Thank you so much for for speaking to your Pelex today, and um, hopefully, we'll have you back someday. Thank you again, once again, for the invitation. Your Pelex is run by volunteers. 
We aren't funded by any big donors, and we definitely aren't an institution of the European Union, as some of our lovely followers seem to think and imply from time to time. Everything we do, including this podcast and our shiny new and improved website, is only made possible with the help of our supporters. And we, of course, want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro a month. So please don't miss out. Support us on Patreon. Um, thank you. Hello again, Ewan here, and today I have the great pleasure of sitting down with someone who knows the Western Balkans perhaps as well as anyone from the Western Balkans, an associate professor at the University of the Peloponnese and the head of Department of Political Science and International Relations, as well as a member of the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group, Nikolaus Dufakis. Nikolaus, welcome. Uh, hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. Fantastic to have you on the podcast. So my first question is, the Western Balkans as a sort of uh, a name, as a, as a term, is mostly used to describe the Balkan countries that are in the sort of EU's line of sight in terms of expansion. You know, uh, what else is there that, that unifies these countries or is it just a, a term used as a sort of incidence of political geography? Yeah, uh, already the term Balkans is, was negative enough. I mean, uh, we, uh, we tend to use the word Balkanization to denote uh, fragmentation or a negative uh, situation. So Western Balkans has, even, has a, a negative connotation from day one because this was a term that has been introduced in the vocabulary once it was clear that Bulgaria and Romania had an EU accession perspective. So this was the, the part of the Balkan region at the, at the late 90s that uh, did not have a, a similar perspective at that moment. Uh, beyond political geography, there are, there are uh, of course, there are differences, but uh, the very, very quickly, I may say that uh, they face uh, a lot of similar problems in terms of uh, political and economic reforms uh, needed uh, for, for the EU accession. They are countries with weak uh, rule of law institutions. They are countries, these are countries with um, problems in terms of media freedom, with uh, elections which are not free and fair, according to the way that we understand in, in other places around the world, though there are elections taking place. Uh, there are problems uh, with uh, the um, with the rule of law, uh, weak rule of law institutions, with um, uh, weak uh, check and balance check and balance mechanisms. So these are similar uh, uh, threats that gives a, a, a picture of a regional pattern. Um, one of the countries of Croatia um, was acceded to the EU in 2013. What was it about Croatia which meant that? Croatia was able to, to accede to the EU when others are still in the negotiating phase? It's very difficult to answer this question because, you know, um, it's been some years since Croatia has acceded to the EU and um, the next round of enlargement will not be before 2025. So eventually Croatia and the, the next Western Balkan country will have, will have acceded to the EU a different context. The quick answer will be that um, at a certain point um, in, the, uh, in the beginning of uh, this century, there was a, a bipartisan consensus in Croatia uh, on the EU accession and a genuine effort by the entire political system to advance reforms. If, if I were to, to point out two differences, one is that the rule of law functions better, the prosecutor's authorities have wide independence, and uh, there is a robust civil society acting as a watchdog uh, on, of uh, public authorities. 
to give us an example, Ivo Sanader, the Prime Minister who initiated many reforms of Croatia as a way to EU accession, was later uh, judged for crimes and sentenced to prison. This is something very uncommon for the Western Balkans. So if, if I were to single out uh, two, two sections in which there were clear differences in terms of delivering results and effectiveness, this might be um, the independence of justice and um, the, the role of uh, organized civil society as a watchdog on, uh, on this type of reforms. So you talked about um, the next round of accession being in 2025. Um, and right now, Albania, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia are all negotiating candidates. Um, for our listeners, if, if they weren't aware, um, but some of these processes have been have been slower than others, um, and sort of almost feel as if they're stagnating. Which of the countries do you think is 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 likely to to make it to full accession in the next round? Uh, if if we talk uh, institution purely institutionally, and we'll see the progress that they have registered so far, the quick answer might be Montenegro followed by Serbia. Montenegro has commenced accession negotiation. It has opened almost all negotiation chapters. And Serbia has opened the half negotiation chapters. As opposed to the rest of the countries, Albania and North Macedonia, that, that they are the states of opening accession negotiations. So if we see just at the institutional procedure, we have the impression that Montenegro is a for, uh, the front runner, followed by Serbia. But sometimes uh, reality is, uh, is, is very different. Montenegro, for instance, is a country that has not witnessed yet a change of power. The same party has been governing the country since 1989. The same person, the president of Montenegro, has been governing the country, altering between the post of the prime minister and the president for almost 30 years. So uh, the institutional, uh, uh, institutional snapshot might be deceiving uh, in terms of progress. The, um, it is very difficult to say how things will evolve because another thing that we have learned during the last decade is that the democratization is not a linear process. I mean, countries cannot go only better. What we are noticing throughout the region, with the exception of North Macedonia since um, uh, 2017, is uh, democratic backsliding. So if we take into consideration that the uh, progress might be reverted and is not consolidated, it is very difficult to say which country at the, at the end uh, will uh, complete the reforms. Yeah, I think that democratic backsliding is something that's been uh, watched closely and or perhaps picked up by a lot of Western media um, in uh, the last three years or so. And um, Freedom House, uh, think tank out of the US, ranks all of the Western Balkan uh, countries as uh, hybrid regimes. Um, what do you think that? backslide is down to what what's the what's the the cause of the the democratic backsliding in in the various western balkan countries there are several levels at which we may ascribe responsibility at uh, if if we focus at the eu some may say that uh, the eu neglect and uh, the slowdown of the enlargement process has um, uh, has uh, has created less enthusiasm in the in the western balkan countries to carry out the reforms if we, if we focus on the level of the countries, and this I think this is the most proper uh, level uh, where we should uh, check for a while, uh, we have uh, in, all this, in all of these countries, with the exception again of North Macedonia, uh, authoritarian or semi-authoritarian leaderships that have uh, uh, consolidated their, their staying power. According to the European Commission, I mean, you mentioned Freedom House and uh, some, such as the Prime Minister of Serbia has uh, disputed the accuracy of this, uh, of this uh, assessment. The European Commission itself talks of state capture. 
and, this, and the European Commission is notorious for being too diplomatic on this type of things. So there is a, a widespread problem of authoritarian leaderships uh, that have consolidated their power in the region. Their parties uh, control uh, the public administration. The parliaments are not functioning well. Opposition parties are frequently boycotting the parliamentary activities and uh, there is intense polarization. Elections are not uh, free and fair. The media uh, are, uh, are not free. They are engaged in self-censorship. It's quite common in the Balkans to have uh, intimidation and um, threats to journalists. So there is a, a, a whole climate rendering the, the game unfair for the opposition, but allowing the, allowing the governing uh, parties to prevail. So uh, the authority, these authoritarian leaderships have, in, uh, in terms of discourses, espoused the Europeanization um, and uh, the EU perspective of their countries. They're also occasionally uh, 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 complying with EU dictates in terms of procedures, nominally, but in substance, they are not uh, particularly interested or they don't show that, uh, that interested to advance their country's EU accession more than what, it, what is necessary to have this legitimacy to stay in power. So the EU, the EU accession perspective for those leaderships is a vehicle of uh, legitimacy towards the societies, but they are not, they don't seem eager to uh, fulfill uh, these uh, criteria and these requirements because this criteria and these requirements implies that they will seed powers, uh, they will seed some of these powers that they have accumulated during the last years, and they may end up uh, losing the elections. Something we talked about on the podcast recently has been um, the sort of rather explosive comments from Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic about the sort of lack of European solidarity, is what the language that he used, over the coronavirus crisis. Um, you know, how serious a hit is that to be actually seen as? Have EU Western Balkans relations taken a big hit because of COVID-19? And I suppose shipments from China was something that the Serbian president said was, was better solidarity than the European Union. What role has China had on, on influencing Western, Bal Western Balkan politics over the last few months? Uh, thank you for this question. In fact, we, we should make a difference between reality and perceptions. The reality is that the EU has given the most important assistance during the pandemic. The EU assistance to the Western Balkans amounts to 3.3 billion euro. It, com it comprises different things, such as assistance to the health sector, macroeconomic assistance, assistance for the in the, in the social in sector. So this is a package that is unrivaled by any other external actor caring for the region. So this is the reality. The, per the public perception, though, is that China did or does more, or Russia does more for the Balkans. It is true that President Vucic went himself in the airport. He welcomed himself the masks that came from China. He kissed the flag of China. He said that uh, Xi Jinping is his brother. He thanked the, the Chinese people. And this is what, for, most, for many people, stays as an image. This is the image of a country feeling enormous gratitude for an assistance, which is, of course, necessary. I don't try to, under, to underestimate it. But it is inferior to what the EU does in the area. So the EU has a problem of PR. We are not so well promoting or showing what we are doing for the region, and there is not a face to put behind to the EU assistance. So, so it is much more uh, anonymous, as opposed to the Chinese or the Russian or the Turkish, if you prefer, assistance to the region that comes that that is that, that uh, has the adequate profile and visibility in the societies. In this result, there are polls in Serbia a few years ago that they were asking the Serbian people, which one you think gives, which country gives the greatest development assistance to your country, to Serbia? 
And people were saying that it was Russia, where Russia's assistance is 0.5% of the assistance that Serbia gets. And we see that perceptions finally matter. They create political results, and they may be totally different than what is the reality. I find that, that quote, the, the idea that Europe has a PR problem to be a really, um, it, it really uh, highlights the, the problem the EU, I think, is having in, in the Western Balkans at the moment. Uh, another area of perhaps contention between uh, Western Balkan countries and the EU has been in, in North Macedonia, where um, a great amount of political capital was spent over the last five years, creating the Prespa Agreement, um, changing the name of North Macedonia, which has then allowed uh, North Macedonia to join, join NATO. Um, but things appear to be moving slightly more slowly when it comes to EU negotiations. Is that a feeling that's felt uh, amongst both political elites and um, amongst ordinary people in North Macedonia? It was very unfortunate that um, North Macedonia's uh, accession negotiations did not commence once the PRESPA agreement was signed. This was the, the logical step that, uh, that uh, North Macedonia has been expecting during the last decade uh, uh, while the name dispute uh, was, um, was not resolved. There are many reasons why, why this did not happen. It was unfortunate because uh, some countries did not want to separate the case of North Macedonia from Albania. And even if we see the reports of the European Commission of uh, 2 May 2020, we see that North Macedonia gets a clear uh, green light to open access to negotiation, as opposed to all the strings attached to Albania's case, where there are serious deficiencies in terms of uh, organizing elections, justice independence, uh, and, uh, and justice independence, to name a, few, a couple of examples. So by coupling these two countries, uh, to some extent, North Macedonia paid the bill for uh, Albanians' lower, lev lower level of preparedness. The most important though, reason has been uh, France's position. Uh, France uh, uh, generally is a country, traditionally is a country more interested in deepening as opposed to enlarging. And, uh, and uh, President Macron used this opportunity uh, to try to, to accept more pressure on Germany and to the rest of the Europeans that while we are talking about enlargement, what I would like to see some general progress in the deepening of the EU and the EU integration. So it was very unfortunate for North Macedonia because at that timing uh, they, paid, they paid the price for, for, for circumstances beyond their control. They had delivered to what they had been requested. But, but uh, this, these two factors were exogenous to its own preparedness. Now we're at the point in which um, Clearly, the Council has decided that the accession negotiation will start during 2020. Uh, the obstacle has been removed. The European Commission has uh, revitalized its enlargement strategy, taking into consideration a French proposal delivered by a non-paper last year. So this is over. Uh, still, there are consequences, and the consequences that the Zayev government uh, uh, quitted. Uh, they call for early elections. Now we have a caretaker government, and it is uncertain that whether uh, uh, Zoran Zaev, the person who delivered on the, on the PRESPA agreement and has brought a wind of change in his country following, following uh, Gruevsky's uh, tenure, whether he will be re-elected. So he might be, Zoran Zaev, and, uh, and I'm not speaking about him personally, but whatever he represents in his efforts to reform, might be the victims of these unfortunate circumstances. It's really interesting that Zaev the government and the North Macedonian people as a whole might be suffering as a sort of pawn in, in the sort of France-Germany, France-Eurozone relations. Um, that's really interesting. Just to finish up, 
you mentioned um, elections coming up in North Macedonia. In fact, they're not the only elections in the next 12 months in the Western Balkans. We're also expecting elections in Serbia, Montenegro and Albania. Um, are there any uh, headlines, big news lines that we're expecting to come from those elections? And you know, yeah. what do you think that will mean for the situation in, say, 12 months? Okay, so my first uh, question will be, uh, my, my first uh, question is whether the, the opposition will participate in these elections and precisely the election in Serbia and Montenegro and Albania. That's a big question mark. Elections without opposition are not regular elections. They won't bring any change. They don't give any legitimacy to the winners. They don't give justice to the people. So my first question mark is whether the opposition will participate. And this is uh, very important. The second thing is, and this is, these two are linked together, is under what conditions will the elections take place? Uh, if there is not electoral reform, and this is linked with what I just mentioned, the election results will be, will be what is expected actually. And uh, the, uh, we will see that the same parties will, uh, will, will uh, prevail and, uh, with, a new, with a new mandate and a new legitimacy to carry on uh, governing their countries. So without electoral reform, without the participation of the opposition, we can't expect any real change. I think that the only question mark is North Macedonia. Not only the two parties are tight, are very close together, but also the Albanian factor is critical for the formation of a government. All governing, in the last uh, 30 years, all governments were, had a governing coalition in which the Slav Macedonian party and an Albanian party were in government. So this is an election in which the result is the most uncertain. It matters a lot also because um, VMRO in North Macedonia has uh, promised, if it comes to power, to, uh, to undo the PRESPA agreement. Uh, while it, is, it might be just cheap talk ahead of the elections, this is a serious threat to regional stability because it, uh, it, will, it will create a, a source of uncertainty in the region. Uh, in all other cases, in the election in Serbia, and especially in Serbia and Montenegro, but to a lesser extent in Albania, uh, what, what matters is if the, if the opposition will participate and whether ahead of the elections will have electoral reforms. If we have no electoral reforms or if the, if the opposition does not participate, it will be just a new mandate to the same authorities governing the countries actually. So it will mean no change at all to be business as usual. That's really interesting. And we'll, we'll definitely be keeping that in mind over the next 12 months as we cover these elections. And perhaps we'll be able to speak to you again when uh, one or more of the elections has taken place. Thank you so much for coming on. It will be my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's now time for our Who is Who segment, where we give you more information about a couple of our lovely EU commissioners um, on each episode. And both you and I have pulled a name out of a hat. Um, it's a dwindling number, I must say, but um, we're, we're still going to keep them coming to you. Who did you pick this time around, Ewan? I have our Commissioner for Cohesion and Reforms, Elisa Ferreira. She is a Portuguese politician and member of the country's Socialist Party. That is a member of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats in the EU Parliament, naturally. Now, between 1995 and 2002, Ferreira acted as Minister for the Environment and then Minister for Planning under President Antonio Guterres, who is now the Secretary General of the UN. So a little bit of a connection there. From 2004 to 2016, she represented Portugal as an MEP, with her most well-known work being within the Committee on Economic and Monetary Affairs. 
In 2016, Ferreira left the EU and went back to her home country to join the board of directors of the Bank of Portugal. But it took just three years for her to make a return to EU politics as she got nominated to become a member of Ursula von der Leyen's current commission. She is the first Portuguese woman commissioner, which is pretty exciting. As commissioner for cohesion reforms, Ferreira is responsible for assuring support for regions most affected by digital and climate transitions, including the Just Transition Fund. She also works with EU member states to ensure full and effective use of EU funds and, of course, oversight of their expenditure. Gabriel, who did you pull out of the Europe Foray? Uh, I pulled out Monsieur Didier Renders. So he's the European Commissioner for Justice. He is a member of the reformist movement or the Mouvement Reformateur, uh, which is with the Liberal Renew Europe group um, in the EU Parliament. Uh, in other words, he's a Belgian politician. He is a lawyer by trade, but he's been an impressive 20 continuous years as a minister in Belgium uh, across various governments. Uh, so between 1999 and 2019, when he uh, became a commissioner, he was in Belgian government. So in 1999, he became the country's minister of finance which is a position he held until 2011. While holding that position, as if it's not enough, he was also the country's deputy prime minister under Guy Verhofstadt, and from 2004, also the leader of the reformist movement, so the party he still belongs to today. Uh, in 2011, Belgian prime minister Elio Di Rupo appointed Ponders as his minister of foreign affairs, a position he was in uh, until being nominated to the EU commission last year. And again, as of being Minister of Foreign Affairs wasn't enough, he simultaneously served as Minister of Defense for a year, starting December 2018. So very experienced man. Um, as Commissioner for Justice, as you can imagine, he has the humble responsibility of ensuring the rule of law is upheld within the EU. It's a minor task. And this includes working a lot with the European rule of law mechanism. Thank you for listening to the Europolex podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, guys. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at europolex.eu and at europolex across all social media, except Instagram, that is. Uh, as I say every time, it's at europe underscore lex if you want to follow us there. Um, so thank you and see you next time. Stay home, stay safe. You've been listening to the Europolex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrun. The managing editor was Polychronos Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. And that's it.